one. Uh, this will be part two of last week's message. Uh, and while you're turning there, I just want to make note, Corey Cotton is home, and uh, it's good to see him. He, his hair was longer when he left. Uh, the beard was there, but his hair was longer. So, uh, And, and uh, I know that as grateful as we're have, you, we are to have you back, but your family is uh, far more grateful. Uh, you guys look complete, and uh, it's good to have you back. It is. Uh, and then Summer Dubeck, is she here? She turns, uh, yeah, Summer, where you at, Summer? Yeah, there, she's hiding behind. She, her birthday is Tuesday, and it's one of the big ones. She turns 50 on Tuesday, and uh, I would just say she, de- what's so fun- what, she doesn't look a day over 45. What do you, was that not right? It's 50, right? What is it? What, what? Oh, it's 40. Well, you still don't look a day over 45. And, uh, no, nah, his birthday. Do we have anybody else celebrating? Uh, if you have a July birthday, raise your hand. I don't want to just pick on summer. So are you the only one here with a July birthday? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, Judy. Yeah. She's, what, 50, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, anybody else? What? That, well, so, yeah. Nancy, is it was that is your birthday, with in July? Oh, amen, July birthday. Mark, I think that calls for a happy birthday. Can we do that? No, I. <laughs> hey, that was good. That was good. All right, well, if you start us, I'll just help. Okay, so you can start. Yes, sir. Yes. Birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, and I do appreciate Mark and Linda, CJ, uh, Larry, uh, thoughts. Uh, It is obvious to me that the Spirit of God is leading us in our worship and our thoughts, our prayers during the week as we prepare to come together, have fellowship with Him, fellowship with one another. I never ceases to amaze me as I see that harmony and connection of thoughts and hymns and, um, and then just the fellowship we have with God and with one another. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from those uh, from and grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Uh, my message this morning is going to come directly from that uh, passage in this section of scripture, uh, but then continuing to read verse five and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That is the gospel to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. 
He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. In the red letter words of Christ himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I mentioned last week that, that uh, when you begin to examine Christ uh, as Almighty, and you put it in uh, relationship to this passage of Scripture, uh, the events that were taking place, God's people, His church, were under great persecution. A, per a persecution that I think is unlike any that we, uh, I really believe. Uh, Christians have been persecuted continuously for 2,000 years, but if we'll just uh, do history, give it integrity, and, and be honest with history, uh, the, the persecution um, that Christians were, the things that were happening to them at this point in history, uh, many of us could not even begin to fathom. Uh, the church or Christians, uh, the body of Christ, uh, had nothing. All they had was their faith. Uh, they didn't own pieces of property. Uh, there were no bank, uh, bank accounts. Uh, uh, there was no deed or titles to uh, belongings. These were just people who had heard the preaching of the apostles um, through the mission work and the the mighty sovereign will of God as he would send his people out into the world to preach the gospel. The message was heard. The Spirit of God moved. People were saved from community to community to community and the church was established, the body of Christ, people, the people of God. And, uh, and under this persecution, John, one of those original 12 disciples, he is a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, and God gives him a revelation, a revelation to God's people to encourage them. And then we know today that that revelation, although it was specifically in many ways for God's people then facing persecution, it was also not just in the present, it would also deal with things from the past, but to encourage and establish faith and hope. Uh, and to encourage and challenge, also challenge God's people, um, and then moving into the future as well. This is, was not a temporary message. It was present, it dealt with the past, and it was specifically for God's people then and specifically for God's people today. So I just want to say that. But if, if you were under that persecution and you needed, um, you needed assurance from God, that, you, that his will was in fact going to be done in spite of everything that was happening to you, in spite of everything that you were experiencing in that persecution. Um, the distress obviously had to have been great fear and depression. Um, they, were, they were consumed with, with deception uh, in their communities, amongst their families, uh, uh, politically, the government of Rome, and even God's people, uh, a pretty significant segment 
of the Jews who were certainly anti-Christ and anti-Christian. And you're a Christian trying to survive under that, that uh, set of circumstances 2,000 years ago. And God gives John a revelation. And as we read, it was the revelation of Jesus Christ. It was from God. It was given to you and I, to John the bondservant by an angel. And it was, it was to be the testimony and the words that John could bear witness to that would encourage God's people, give them hope, and probably in many cases, just enough hope to get through the next day, maybe the next moment, maybe the next hour. But that's what it was designed for. And the punctuation, the punctuation is the statement about Christ, he is almighty. Now, if you were looking at last week's uh, handout, that word almighty, uh, pantidinomis, uh, meant, and this is what it meant, unrestricted power exercising absolute dominion. So when Christ says that I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, uh, present, past, and future, the Almighty, literally, if you were alive 2,000 years ago, the statement would say, someone with unrestricted power exercising absolute dominion. Now, I had mentioned to you last week that if you were alive 2,000 years ago uh, and you were reading the Revelation, it's really mysterious to us. We read it today, a lot of cryptic language, things that we might not, you know, what does he mean? What is he talking about? What is that statement re reflective of? What's the meaning behind it? The use of colors, the use of numbers, the uses of places geographically, Megiddo, and you could just go on and on and on. Colors and numbers and phrases and statements, and they would, have been, they would be foreign to us. If we just sit down, and you do today, and maybe you've done that, you read it, and you think, there's some stuff I can understand here, but there's a whole much, there's just a lot of stuff that makes no sense. 2,000 years ago, it made sense to God's people. God's people... For 1,500 years prior to the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, his life, his ministry, his, his uh, death, resurrection, and his ascension, prior to that, God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Jews, had, we have the history. We have Genesis through Malachi. We have the prophetic history. We have the wisdom literature. We have the book of Psalms. We have the first five books in the Old Testament. We have the law, Torah. We have... We have this, this God-inspired scripture, Genesis through Malachi, that very clearly uh, gives us a great picture of God and his people. And most of their history was despotic. Most of their history, they only for a brief period of time actually ruled and reigned with, with power uh, a, a very short period of time historically. Most of their time, they were... They were being uh, conquered, abused, enslaved. And so out of that, uh, what we would call a cryptic language, and by the way, any, if, you, if you were to walk in a prison system in the state of Texas uh, or any prison in the United States, uh, the factions that are in prisons, the gangs, they all have a cryptic language. They use signs and numbers and colors and, and, and phrases that are known to them. They're an enslaved people by their own doing, but they're an enslaved people. And so the history 
of oppressed and enslaved people is to come up with a cryptic language that includes, there's again, signs and uh, colors and numbers and, and phrases that, that they could use as a way to communicate and, and to get away from someone, to subvert something, or, or maybe just to survive. So that's really John's revelation. All the, all the information in there, it's difficult for you and I to understand it. God's people understood it. Now, here's going to be a perfect example this morning. I gave you a handout. I'm going to do the handout as a form of an introduction. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it, but I want you to see the connection between that set of circumstances 2,000 years ago, the application for us today, and it starts in this revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants through the bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And by the way, that would have included the gospel of John and John's first three, that first, second, and third John. So that's also just not a, rev, a, a, a statement of John's revelation now, but all that he had seen and all that he had written. So, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, here it is. This is the first uh, statement in this revelation that you and I just might read over and miss the significance of the Almighty, miss the significance of unrestricted power exercising absolute dominion, uh, Jesus Christ, to the church. But he says, John, through John, this bondservant, the revelation of Jesus Christ from God, to John, the bondservant, to us, you and I, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. You could tie that back, harmonize that with verse 8, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We're going to do seven spirits next week. But I want you to see this morning the application then and the, and the great application for you and I today that is completely clear to you, this statement to the seven churches. Now, if you go to chapter 2, you can read the address. And by the way, if you're a Christian, I would just say to you, it would be a good exercise for you to read these statements from Jesus Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, there's been historical discussion and scholarly debate. Why just these seven churches? There were certainly more than seven churches. Uh, there are several thoughts behind that. Uh, what we do have specifically, though, in this writing, uh, it is to the seven churches that are in Asia. The application, though, really had application for all of the churches and even for you and I today. But so the seven churches 2,000 years ago, you're alive. You come across that number seven. In your handout, I'm just going to do this quickly. I'm not going to go over every jot and tittle here. But if you start in the handout, the numbers in biblical times are often symbolic of a deeper meaning. That's true here. The number seven, it's especially prominent. It's used over 700 times uh, in Scripture. And, uh, and it, refer it was specific to, again, if you were alive 2,000 years ago, and the number, if you were reading uh, the number seven in Scripture... If a, an apostle was referencing it, remember the earliest Jewish in, or Christian influences were Jews. You read the book of Acts, 
Who, and Christ would even say, first his ministry was to the Jews, God's people. And then you had the ministry to the Gentiles, those that weren't Jewish. But if you read in the book of Acts from the day of Pentecost, the apostles were Jewish. And as they went out and fulfilled the commission of going out into the world, the very earliest and most prominent influence in the first century church was Jewish. When Paul writes 2 Timothy uh, in the third chapter in verse 16, all scripture is God-inspired for teaching and reproof and rebuke for the man of God and training them in the way of righteousness. He was talking about Genesis through Malachi. The Bible of the first century church, as the New Testament was being written, was the Old Testament. The influence were Jewish individuals teaching, using the Old Testament to say, look, this Jesus of Nazareth, and whether you were Jewish or you were a Gentile being converted through one of the mission trips of Paul, this, you could, here it is. It could be in the book of Genesis. It could be anywhere. It could be in the prophetic words of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even the psalmist wrote. So the Old Testament was a proof text of God's grace, mercy and love, and judgment that he would provide through his son. And the church, that's what they had. And so they were being taught and influenced by those first century apostles. And so they knew what the number seven represented to them. And it really represented three things. Completion and perfection. The number seven. If you read the number seven as they were reading John's Revelation uh, and seven churches, not so much would they have uh, thought about the geographical place of the seven churches in Asia Minor, but they certainly would have thought, okay, seven, completion and perfection. That's number one. Number two, it would have been exoneration and healing. And the third application uh, concept of number seven that the Jews, first century Christians, and you and I need to understand is promises uh, and the fulfillment of promises and oath. So seven represented to them, yes, seven churches in Asia Minor, but he was about to reveal to them about God's complete, perfect, exonerating, healing, fulfillment of promises and oaths to the church that was under great persecution. That's what they would have read. And you and I today, church, we need to read the same thing. If you go down, the number seven also denotes, uh, I put on that first page, uh, denotes completion at the crucifixion. When Jesus spoke seven statements in agony from the cross at the completion of his heavenly. Have you ever looked at that? He spoke seven statements from the cross at the completion at his earthly Duties in, in the context of perfection, Jesus spoke in a grouping of seven when he instructed us how to pray. You have, we've included those. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, a perfect way to prayer, considering the words came from Christ himself. He spoke in a grouping of seven when he described himself as the way of salvation in the Gospel of John. Listen, I narrowed this way down. Literally, you have no idea. Over 700 times, as I said, the number seven. Uh, I love the fact that King David, page two, referenced the number seven in describing the perfect nature of God's word. In the uh, 12th Psalm, he said, uh, the, the Lord's words are flawless. They're perfect. Like gold refined seven times. Complete and perfect. 
uh, Isaiah described the coming Messiah, he, he listed 70, seven qualities that the Savior would embody. You can read that in Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. The second is exoneration and healing. So the number seven is also linked to exoneration. The Jews, every seven years, go to the Deuteronomic, the Mosaic Law, every seven years they were to exonerate debt, free their slaves. It's part of the Jewish law. They understood that. Um, Peter, the great story in the New Testament where Peter goes, should I forgive somebody seven times? Because he understood that seven was uh, also about completion and perfection, but exoneration. And Jesus said, no, <laughs> 70 times seven. And that wasn't the literal number of 490s. It meant that the emphasis on the number seven was to indicate complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness in the context of healing. You read about it in the Old Testament, 2 Corinthians 5. Elisha used the number seven. We told Naaman, the leper, you go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. If you read the story, he sure didn't want to do that. Uh, the healing miracles on the seventh day. On the seventh, there's seven of them in the Gospels. And boy, there's a sermon all in of itself. And then the third is the fulfillment of prophecies, of promises and oaths. Seven represented the fulfillment of promises and oath. Um, if you fact, I, I wanted to put this, in fact, the first uh, paragraph in the third page there, the Hebrew uh, word for swearing an oath, uh, Sheba, and the Hebrew word for seven, Sheba, both are derived from the Hebrew word meaning satisfaction or uh, fullness, which is Saba. So uh, in Genesis, God promised not to destroy the earth again with a flood and memorializing this covenant with the rainbow, which is comprised of seven colors. You could go on and on and on. Uh, this is one of the great stories where Abraham swore an oath of ownership over a certain well of water. You can read about it in Genesis 21. He satisfied, this is how deeply ingrained this was in the Jewish thinking. He satisfied the oath with a gift of seven lambs and named the site uh, and the oath with a Beerth, uh, Beersheba, which means the well of the oath or the well of seven. I said, I'm just giving you a pin's head of the influence of number seven and what it meant to God's people, the Jews for 1,500 years, and then the church was, it was established on the day of Pentecost by Jewish influences. This wasn't a mystery for them. This didn't have so much to do with the geographical area of the seven churches of Asia Minor. This would be a complete and perfect message of exoneration and healing that was based upon the fulfillment of the promises and the oaths of God to his people who were being persecuted. Now, church today. I do believe, I believe this with all of my heart. I'm convinced of it in my spirit. I believe we are indeed living in the last day. Christ himself said he, he himself didn't know. If you go to Peter's writings, he would say that the Lord is loving and kind and compassionate. He's slow to anger. And that some people may think that as time goes by, he, you know, God isn't keeping his oath. But the scripture very clearly says God's timing, the way he measures time is not your, like yours and mine. 
A, a thousand years is like a day to the Lord and a day is like a thousand years. But the reason, it may appear that God is slow in his judgment or fulfilling his promises as judge, judge and savior of all humanity is this is because it is God's desire that he wouldn't lose one. Do you read that? And I referenced the, that passage. But, but uh, so I want you to consider today in light of this statement from Christ the Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. The Alpha and the Omega. The Almighty. To Christians 2,000 years ago about a great persecution that they were going through. I want you to make the application today. I want us to do that together. First, let me make a statement about the church. I heard several years ago a great evangelist say to me that the body of Christ, the church, is quite evidently the most confused group of people on the planet. I thought, well, that's a provocative statement. I'd like to hear what you have to say. <laughs> okay, you've said it. Prove it. And he did. He said, we actually believe that church is a piece of property. It's brick and mortar. And it's titled land. And it's historic possessions. And we really do. We spend more time agonizing over what we believe we own in the form of property and acreage and brick and mortar. And we have more care and concern for that in many ways than we do the lost and dying souls in a broken world. He says, you want to see church people's uh, in an uproar just involve something that has to do with the property. I have seen it in three decades as a preacher. He made this statement when Jesus Christ was praying in the garden and when he returns, the one that who is and who was and who is to come, not one penny in one bank of all the combined money. If you could take every bank statement in Bryan, just Bryan College Station and the amassed wealth of all the, the bank, the money that is in the bank, when Christ returns, is he going to take, is he going to ask for bank statements or ledger and take any of that money with him? If you think he is, that's scary. Is he going to take any of the acreage with him? Is he going to redeem any brick or mortar or piece of steel? Is he going to take any deed or title to any piece of property that the church says they own. And yet you want to see people's, God's people in an uproar. Look at all the church buildings with all the signs and all the prestige. Church people actually think that they actually think this that there is not a spiritual application to the money of a, it, it, that a church has. It may be the most spiritual dynamic. 
Because in that, there's where the heart is revealed. God would rather you and I, if we consider it our money, keep it. And he would. These are not my words. These are his words, his thoughts. The church is not a geographical place. It is the redeemed souls of men and women throughout all the, all the millennia now. Two millennia, two days according to God, two days. Two days have passed according to his timing when Christ hung on the cross. His timing. And he will not redeem one piece of ownership that man values when he comes again. When these people were persecuted, there was no deed or title to any piece of property that they would have said, we own. They met in their homes or at a place of prayer. They may have met in a synagogue. And what have we become 2,000 years later? And none of it is going to be redeemed. Not one thing. I, I love, and I believe it, tell you, I love stained glass because it tells a story. And I have to tell you at night when you drive, sometimes you can see the stained glass here. I don't care about the stained glass. What it does, it does. And I see the value in that. I see the praying Savior in a garden, garden saying, and his blood became like, his sweat became like blood. And he said, Father, take this cup from me. However, not my will, but your will be done. If you'll take the time and look at the wonderful, and I think they're wonderful artifacts that have to do with the history of this church that were symbolic of something that really was probably a statement of someone's faith. I hear, now, that's good. I'm not, it's okay. But it's not okay when you actually miss the symbolism, believing somehow there's value in that, when none of it's going to be redeemed. None of it. That is not going to be in heaven. And you, if you're in heaven, won't give it a minute. You won't give it a millisecond thought. You won't think, you know, I wish we'd had that. It'd have been nice to have that stained glass. No, you won't. You won't. That Baptist, no, you won't. That great boy, somebody may have handcrafted it. No, you won't. But we have so much pride. And the perfect and complete message to Christians being persecuted was based upon a moment in the life of Jesus. In a moment, you can read about it in the Gospel of Matthew. He's having a conversation with Peter. He said, Peter, well, his disciples, he said, who, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah, Elijah. Some say, man, John the Baptist. Well, who are you? And Peter said, you're... You're the son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Simon or Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father in heaven did. And, and now you're going to be called Peter, which means rock. And I'm going to, because of this faith that God gave you, go to, you should read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, we have this great sea of witnesses that surround us. And he talks about the purpose of that and what God accomplished in them, and now would accomplish today, and he would say about Jesus, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. 
Complete perfection. Jesus, the author and perfection of faith, said that I'm going to build a church and the basis of faith and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Complete and perfect. I want to ask you, I would ask any preacher in any church membership anywhere, if we're going to understand Christ is almighty, complete and perfect, message to the church being persecuted, what do you say? Is it your church? Did you establish it? Have you redeemed it? Was your blood shed for it? Is it the preacher's church? Is it the elder's church? Is it the pope's church? It is not your church. And it is not my church. And if that inflames your spirit or soul, I will, I just let somebody needs to be interceding for you in prayer. Because this word will never mean anything to you then. This revelation of Jesus Christ from God given to his bondservants to be repeated so that those who would read it and those that would hear it and those that would heed the prophecy would be blessed. You'll only start... When you say the body of Christ, the message to the persecuted church was one of completion and perfection based upon the ownership, the complete establishment, the complete ownership, and the perfection of Jesus Christ. I need to know that. All Christians everywhere need to know that. No piece of property that says church is going to be redeemed. And in fact, here's something that you may not want to hear. That when he does come, and a new heaven and a new earth is established. And I want you to consider this. I want this to be seared in your heart. If there's something that you hold precious here. That has been made by men. Even with an intent, to, with good intention. Is going to be destroyed in fire. I want you to be challenged this morning because this is, we, listen, there is a pandemic. And I don't have enough time this morning to read the verses about healing. I'm going to have to extend this next week. It's very important that we understand what God says to the church about healing. His word is very clear. And it's not some Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse sideshow that some faith healer will try to influence you that has something to do with your faith. Well, I'm going to have to turn this into part three or four. I, I'm out of time. It's how passionate I feel about this. It's how passionate John felt about this. Is how passionate Christ is about this. For us to fully understand this message to the seven churches, 
we've got to begin with the understanding of the revelation of Christ. And the revelation of Christ was that he did something complete and he did something perfect. And he established a church because he has unrestricted power and he exercises absolute dominion. You know what the problem in the church today is? There are men and women in the church today throughout the world who believe they have power and dominion. A persecuted church under any circumstances will never hear or heed the prophecy of the things that are written in this revelation from Christ as long as they believe, the preacher believes, the leadership believes, the members believe that you and I had something to do with uh, power and authority, completion and perfection, and a piece of property that satisfies my temporal need. It has to be said. It has to be said. I'm going to finish here because the burden that I'm seeing right now, and I mentioned it last week, and I so desperately am not going to spend any more time on this frivolous thing. I'm just not going to. The time is near. You either believe that or you don't. I hope you do. But, but if that's true, and it is true, who are we called to be? I've talked to a half a dozen spiritual mentors and a Bible professor and preacher and throughout the world and throughout the United States. They, they have relationships with missionaries and churches. and They said the average church attendance in the world, in the entire world, is about 30 to 40 percent right now. Giving has dropped by 50 percent. Now, I'm not judging anyone. But the most provocative statement, this is a time of persecution. This is a time where people's faith is being shaken. The revelation was, it was relevant to uh, those that, who is and from him who is and who was and who is to come. Persecuted people. Winnowing. Wheat and tares. He said, there's three groups of people that are not coming, they're not assembling to worship God. He said, those that are genuinely fear, and, and, and they're fearful. And, 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 and the story in the Bible is God's people have always dealt with a certain level of fear. Man, look at Elijah, he was fearful. Jeremiah was fearful. Peter was fearful. All the apostles, See, we, it's part of us. We, we have the admonition not to be. But we do, we fear. And so people are fearful, and I wouldn't judge them because Aubrey's got to worry about his own fear. Now, I don't want to get the disease, and I don't want to give it to anybody. I get it. He said, but then there's people that aren't coming because the pandemic has given them excuse not to come. I 
I don't know who those people are. But the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, he knows. He knows. I don't. And he said, and then there's those folks, he said, you know, they, maybe for the same reasons. They've quit giving. Well, once again, maybe it's fear. Maybe it's an excuse. Maybe it's an attempt to control policy or something. I don't know. God knows. But then there's a third group of people. They have read the word, they have heard the word, and they're heeding the word. He knows who those are. This is important. When we talk about healing next week, I hope that I do the scripture justice because there is a harmony in Scripture about God healing disease and healing a land, and it never wavers. We have a culmination of harmonic words from the Word of God that never waver. You want healing in this land? You want healing in this land? This has to do with this prophecy to the church, the role of the church. We'll talk about that next week. I'm going to spend, as we move forward, we're going to discuss the seven spirits that are before the throne. I'm going to, I'm going to take my time doing this because it's that important. Souls are at stake. A judgment is coming. And it's time that the message of the church to the church and from the church goes beyond the walls of a deeded property that will be burned up in eternity. But our souls won't. Some of them will. And that's what we should really be concerned about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my hope and my prayer is that we hear the words of your prophecy. We read them. We read them. We hear them. We heed them. That they become overwhelmingly important to us. And whatever distraction and earthly thing that is consuming us, Father, led by our pride and our ego and our flesh, that you, you destroy it, you remove it, you, you replace it with a heart full of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, exoneration and healing. Because we believe your promises, we believe your oaths, and we believe them because of your almighty Son and our almighty Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.